Now we're starting to see that there's a pretty high price for the cheap food that we've been growing. What we have recently is a great chemical experiment of the last 60 years or so, which is an industrial model. And now a lot of the wheels are coming off that bus. The first year, the organic trial was just as good as the chemical trial. And the second year, it outshined it just by 10 to one. I said, I'm done with chemicals. I think there's a future here. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, where we speak with folks taking bold actions for a thriving planet. Our aim is to bridge divides and provide calls to action to help you find your role for positive impact. I'm your host, Lara Tomov. Today, we're joined by Bob Quinn, who is a farmer from Big Sandy, Montana. Bob made the switch from so-called conventional agriculture to organic in 1988. Recently, he co-authored a book with Liz Carlisle titled Grain by Grain, a quest to revive ancient wheat, rural jobs, and healthy food. We hear from Bob about the exciting solutions offered by accelerating regenerative organic agriculture for strengthening rural communities and improving public and environmental health. I was raised on the farm my father was raised on. My grandfather started this farm, which was a wheat and cattle ranch in North Central Montana. My grandfather came here and started this farm in 1920. So this year we celebrated our 100th anniversary. So I was raised here and worked here and was very familiar with it. I had two loves growing up, however, um, and one of them wasn't cattle. Um, one was my garden and another was science. When I went to college, I studied botany and plant pathology, <clears throat> and I was really enjoying that so much. I continued on to get a, a master's there at Montana State University in plant pathology and then went on for a PhD in plant biochemistry at UC Davis. And after 10 years of college, I, however, I was a little disillusioned with academia and how the focus in research is just over um, grants and trying to get more money and or enough money even to survive and to run your lab. And <clears throat> we were told in our lab not to talk to certain other competing labs, even though we're doing similar things. And rather than advanced science by collaboration, we were in competition for the same grant money. And I thought that was a, f a funny way to do science. And I was a little naive and didn't understand that that's the way about everything works. So I came home at, by 1978, I was back to the farm. And by this time our farm was 2,400 acres, which was about the right size for one family, but a little bit small for two. So I tried um, to figure out how we could add value to what we were raising and, and um, have enough money to support two families. And one of the things we stumbled onto was selling the grain off our farm directly to whole grain bakers. But I had found a cousin in Southern California who was looking for something to do. And I said, why don't you see if you can sell my grain to whole grain bakers in Southern California. And within a few weeks, he found a customer that was going to take a truckload, a semi-load a, a week. And that was enough to really help the financial condition of the farm. And that business expanded in, in, into Montana flour and grain. But the second year, and the thing that really changed the whole course of my farming uh, in a big way was... A uh, call I received one afternoon and he said, hey, Bob, he says, can you see if you can find me some um, organic uh, wheat, the same kind of quality as you've been sending down from off your farm? And I said, oh, sure, Jim, don't worry about a thing. And I, I said, I'll have it down there in 10 days or two weeks or so. And I hung up the phone and then I thought, wow, now what am I going to do? Because um, 
I didn't even know any organic farmers. In fact, <laughs> I didn't even believe in this organic stuff um, because I had been taught for 10 years in college and even in BOA classes years before that, that a plant couldn't tell the difference between a molecule of nitrogen coming out of a manure pile, as you would, or um, out of a sack of ammonium sulfate, a chemical fertilizer. And, and the reason I was taught that, because it's the industrial model. And the industrial model focuses on feeding the plant and giving the plant everything it needs artificially um, so it can grow and be extremely productive. And that's the big goal, high yields and production. And uh, of course, that weakens the plant. And so it's always under stress and that requires a lot of other inputs to protect it from disease and insects that attack things that are under stress because it's growing at an abnormal um, rate. It's always under stress. And so it's weakened to, uh, can't protect itself as, as without these crutches um, as well as a healthy plant can. So, you know, when you, you mentioned so-called conventional, I really appreciate you saying that because Conventional farming, in my mind, is what we've been doing for the last 10,000 years. And that's what's brought stability and built the great civilizations for thousands of years. What we have recently is a great chemical experiment of the last 60 years or so after World War II, which is an industrial model. It's completely artificial, and it's sustained only by enormous inputs. And a lot of the wheels are coming off that bus. We have um, weeds that are resistant to herbicides. We have... Uh, acid spots showing up in our basic uh, soils here in Montana, which um, prevent growth of plants because they have a completely different um, system here and soils than you have in the Midwest where the soils are acidic naturally. Um, when you change that here, it causes lots of trouble and they're trying to fix that with more chemicals. So just one chemical leads to another uh, problem, leads to a chemical fix, which only lasts a short time and it's another chemical fix. So it goes on and on. All, but, but we didn't see that at the beginning. In the beginning, it looked like a, um, a panacea of, of weed control, of increasing yields and that sort of thing. Now we're starting to see that there's a pretty high price for the cheap food that we've been growing. But anyway, that's a different story. I'll get into that later. Um, getting back to my conversion to organic, I finally found a couple farmers in the northeast corner of Montana that were growing organic grain. And I um, drove my truck up there and got a truckload and sent to California, and they loved it. And so uh, I thought, well, okay, great. My customer's happy. That's what business is all about. Everybody wins. That's, my, that's my, the way I like to do business. And then he called back uh, quite soon and said, well, that was so good. I'd take another load and then another load, another load. And finally, I was really scrambling to find enough wheat for him because in, in those days, talking about 84 now, there weren't very many organic grain farmers in Montana, just a, two or three or four and they had a new market for their wheat. They invited me to one of their meetings, and I had been used to going to Farm Bureau meetings in Montana with Montana grain growers, and most of the focus there was on the government programs and low prices and um, commodity program, commodity marketing and all this stuff, which to me wasn't very stimulating, but that's what the talk was. And, and there wasn't very much enthusiasm. Most of the farmers were not encouraging their children to come back to the farm, encouraging them to go off and get a, a real job that could pay um, a, a good living and that sort of thing. Um, but when I went to this organic meeting, it was a completely different experience. They talked about the different crops they were experimenting with. They're talking about how the soil was improving in tilth. You could walk over it and feel it under your feet. It was more spongy. And, and uh, they're talking about increasing the life in their soil. They're talking about growing their own fertilizer. Uh, this is really appealing to me. I thought it was very, very interesting. And I went home and I said, Dad, I think we should 
do a couple of experiments and, and see what this is like. And he said, oh man, we don't know anything about this, which is true, of course. Um, we don't know what we're doing. And, um, but I said, well, we got 20 acres of this of alfalfa that we just planted three or four years ago that could be terminated. And so we, we worked that up with a cultivator and we planted it to winter wheat the next fall. And next to it, there's 20 acres of non-organic that was um, treated just the way we were farming everything else on our farm with chemicals, fertilizers, with herbicides. But that year, when harvest came, the yields uh, and the quality were nearly identical. But the protein, the other thing that we get paid on um, at the elevator because uh, they're after high protein, and pr both proteins were over 15%. Uh, one was the organic was, in this case, higher than the non-organic. It was maybe 15.6, and the other was 15.4, something like that. But they're both so close as to be really statistically uh, not uh, different. And my dad was astounded. Here he had been putting or paying, buying, I should say, um, tens of thousands of dollars of inputs every year um, in terms of fertilizers and, and herbicides. And here's this um, upstart coming back from California after being gone for 10 years off the farm. And he had uh, produced something of the same quality and the same yield without any of those inputs. And I said, wow, look at this, Dad. This is really encouraging. I said, let's do half the farm organic next year. He said, oh, wait, 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 wait a minute. He said, how about, how about 10%? And I said, how about 25? So I said, okay, 25. So we, we converted 25% of the farm. We started converting it to organic. And the um, conversion started out in the next year was 1988. And we um, had a drought that year. And in Montana, uh, when you have droughts in the upper Great Plains, a lot of times you have grasshoppers. And that was an extremely bad year for grasshoppers. In fact, we're having the same kind of year this year. And I called up my friends and I was really concerned. I said, wow, what do you guys do for grasshoppers? Because with my, my non-organic fields, I knew exactly what to do. You just call the, the neighboring spray pilot and he shows up with a plain load of melathion and he sprays the whole field. And of course, he sure is to tell you, they said, now don't go in that field for 24 hours. He said, you know, it's melathion, it's a poison, you know. I said, oh, I know, I know. So anyway, but after you go in the field a day or two later, everything's dead. I mean, the insects, and that's the goal. I mean, you care about the good insects. You just care that the grasshoppers were dead. And they were all dead. And so my organic friend said, well, here's what you do in an organic system. You uh, look for a product called Nosema locusta, and it's a protozoa, which is a little smaller than a bacteria. And you put that on wheat bran, and you spread it around the edges of your field where the grasshoppers are first coming in. Um, so you have to be preventative rather than you know, treating something that's already there. And they eat the wheat bran, they get sick. Uh, it's a wonderful control mechanism. At harvest time, there are almost no grasshoppers in the field. It was a drought year. We had poor yields anyway, but at least we had some yield. And there was no grasshoppers in the combine tank along with the grain. Meanwhile, uh, across the creek in my chemical field, within about 10 days or two weeks, the um, malathion had dissipated and another wave of grasshoppers was coming in. Mm. And of course, the only way to prevent that from happening is to keep spraying malathion every 10 days through the whole season. Well, we couldn't afford to spray it twice. It was hard to afford to spray it once. Uh, it's very expensive. And so we didn't spray it anymore. And at harvest time, there was very little grain left. And there was more, about as many grasshoppers in the grain tank as there was um, wheat. And so when I saw that, I said to my dad, you know, look at this. We, we gave it the best shot we could. We gave it the best chemistry we had to offer for two years. The first year... 
the organic trial was just as good as the chemical trial. And the second year, it outshined it just by 10 to 1. I said, I'm done with chemicals. I think we could, there's a future here. Um, and I'm going to convert the whole farm to organic. And, and my dad supported me in that, which I really supported. Um, sometimes um, the rising generation is in conflict with the, with the existing generation. And I really appreciate my dad for being flexible. And, and after having been shown that something could work, than not being afraid to change what he'd been doing for 30 years. And, uh, and that's what we did. And it took us a lot of learning. Um, we didn't have it all figured out at once. And even after 30 years, we don't have it all figured out. But we have developed a system over the first 10 or 15 years that is stable and uh, reduced the cost of our uh, farming operation by two thirds, increased the value of what we sold by double and sometimes more. And so the bottom line was that we were putting money in the bank instead of taking money out all the time. And our, we became profitable. We were able to pay off our, our operating notes within three years. And we, didn't have, we haven't had any since. So the economic advantage is what first converted me to it. And then very, very quickly, I became a 100% convert to the whole philosophy of a regenerative organic. That's what we were doing with these cover crops, the, adding legumes to our soil and building the soils every other year. And, um, and then growing a crop every other year. And instead of using just summer following techniques, which we had to use it to stay, preserve soil moisture, we only get 12 to 13 inches of rain, so we can't grow a crop every year. And now what is commonly done is um, those uh, fallow years are, are not a no-till, but they're spraying with glyphosate, with Roundup, a very bad chemical for uh, contaminating the soil and the environment. And, um, and that's how it's done. Um, and the organic provides a, a great alternative to all that. And that's a success story that shows benefits for so many involved, right? Not only your yields, but the soil and the, the biodiversity and your profit margin. And that's right. And all those have to do with the, with the farm. But they, it's much broader than that because it circles out to the community. The soil organic farming requires uh, more labor. We don't call it more labor, more work. We call it more jobs. And so you're bringing more jobs back to rural America, which increases the viability of the small towns, um, which are all in decline. And um, so we have an opportunity to not only affect the farm positively, but the community positively. And then when you think about all the chemicals that you're not using anymore, those chemicals aren't polluting the groundwater, they're not polluting the air, they're not polluting the surface water, the lakes or the rivers. You know, we have... Um, uh, a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico with chemical agriculture that's the size of New Jersey. Well, how big does it have to get before we think that maybe there's a problem with this? Um, we have children in Iowa that can't drink from their own wells off their farm because they're so polluted with nitrates from nitrous and fertilizer. How bad, how bad does it have to get before we think that maybe we're going the wrong direction? So we're not only affecting the local community, uh, we're affecting the whole environment. And then when you take it the next step, the most important step, perhaps, and I think, is the health of our people. The health of our people is in decline. We have a growing um, percent of our people that have more and more chronic diseases, like heart disease, like diabetes, um, irritable bowel syndrome, all this kind of stuff. No country, doesn't matter what kind of healthcare system you have, no country can afford to have a significant percent of their population uh, affected with chronic disease. 
they will go bust. They will um, they won't be able to continue as a country with that kind of a trend. Organic agriculture produces high nutritious food, not tainted with uh, chemical residues contributing to this problem. And so you have a chance to reverse some of this. And I think that those four things, you know, you help the farmer and the farm and the soil, that's huge. But you multiply that all over to other farms and other, other farmers um, all over the country, all over the world. Then you have the local community, which they support. Um, then you have the environment. And finally, number four, you have health. So it's, it's, it's a, a huge win, 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 win on areas that are really problematic for the future of the country. Absolutely. And that's why food systems are so exciting because there's so much potential to fix so many That's right. They, they, hold, they hold now the cause of many of the crises we find ourselves in, the health crisis, environmental crisis, um, the decline of rural America, that kind of crisis. They, have, they, they hold the seeds to causing those, but they also hold the seeds to the solutions to all those. And that's what I like to focus on. That's what I focused on in my book. I, focused, I just touched on the problems, but I, I focused on the solutions. And I think that that's, um, that's why I wanted to focus on it and, and, and show people that, you know, it's just not woe is me. There's no hope. It's just all gloom and doom. There is hope, but we have to change. We have to make a change in what, the direction we're doing things and the uh, focus on what we're looking at. And as you had mentioned as well, um, you know, these concepts of organic and regenerative, you know, beyond organic and really working with the health of the soil to continue it to be healthier every year aren't new concepts. You know, as you mentioned, that was just growing foods, you know, sustainably for tens of thousands of years. And, you know, many people might wonder, well, in that case, why isn't everybody growing organic? You know, if there's all these promising things, if you can touch on the realistic obstacles for farmers. Sure. Of switching. Well, to yeah. Well, it just is when we started, we can do nothing about it. We started with, with 20 acres. So we had 1200 acres of cropland. 20 acres out of 1,200, that's um, a very small percent. So a lot of people are right up against the wall and they don't know where to start and, they, and they don't, they're afraid to change anything because they're up against the wall financially. And many of my neighbors have gone broke, had to sell out and uh, many more deep financial trouble because the prices are low right now and the cost of inputs are so high that they cannot make a profit. And, and it's been that way for decades. And the only reason that they haven't gone broke earlier is because of government subsidies that have supplied in Montana, at least, nearly 100% of the, of the net profit of the farm has come from government subsidies, which is, uh, I mean, that's, that's not sustainable. But I think one of the biggest challenges is uh, education. So I would, if I had a magic wand and, or if I was um, running the USDA, I would say, we need in every county, um, a county agent who has training, um, doesn't have to be their only focus, but at least they have training, good training, adequate training in regenerative organic agriculture. So they can advise farmers on where to start and how to, how to succeed with that. At USDA themselves, I would focus on research. You know, the USDA research devoted to organic is less than 1% of the entire research budget. Yet in a, the, the country, the amount of organic food sold in the food stores is at 6%. So we're not even keeping up with the with reality of where we are in production. 
We only have about 1% of the land is organic. We're, we're relying on a lot of imports to meet the demand of organic in America. This is ludicrous. Talk about food security. Um, this COVID thing really showed that what the dangers of that is in all aspects of depending on other countries, faraway countries, maybe countries that can't produce or deliver in times of need, but they, they bring in cheap goods. So everybody's say, oh, wow, it's cheap, it's cheap. Well, what if it doesn't exist? Then what do you do? If, if the food is so cheap, uh, but it's not available, this is a pretty serious problem. And in America, we've had cheap and plentiful food policy for decades. And it is cheap. I mean, it's dropped from 20% of our total uh, cost of, of, of income to less than 10. But on the other hand, healthcare has gone from less than 10 to nearly 20. So you always have to look at those two in combination. But if you take them apart, the people say, oh, how can we afford um, higher priced food? Well, how, how, how can you afford to be sick? So you, you substitute the money you're spending to be sick uh, with cheap food for higher value food that, that costs more because you're actually paying someone a fair price to produce it and they're doing it in a way that's sustainable. But your healthcare dollars are very greatly reduced. And so that's where the money comes from. And in the end, you actually save money. So if the research at USDA was at least equal to the cost or the amount of food being sold, which is 6%, we would have more answers and, and more help available for farmers in transitioning and sustaining and managing weeds and, and uh, crop rotations and other things that build soil and focusing on soil health. I think with research, the very nature of research is for the future, solving problems of the future. And, you should be ahead of where the, the, the actual numbers are. So instead of 6%, we should be looking at 10% of the USDA budget should be organic research. And in my mind, I mean, it's just like, imagine 100, say 100 years ago or more now, when the Model T was on the road, and yet 99% of the government's research was on trying to perfect the stagecoach. That's exactly what we're doing with agriculture right now. We are pouring 99% of our effort into a failed, doomed system that has no future. The, the only system that has a future and hope for the future is regenerative organic agriculture. And yet the powers that be in the egg industrial um, chemical complex, and on the other side, the big pharma who is feeding off of the poor health, um, are doing everything that they can to thwart a cha any change in that at the, at the uh, government level. We have to do it at the, at the store level, at the restaurant level, at everything we put under the table at that level. The choices we make in the grocery store will drive it because the government's not going to drive it because there's too much opposition. And with not only within food systems and agriculture, but um, you know, all sectors we're seeing now a great deal of divides happening. And we know that divided, we can't move forward in good ways. What do you have a, a story of an example of in your work bridging a divide with another sector or organic skeptics or other? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I've maintained my membership in Farm Bureau. I mean, it was a, my dad was state president. Um, I, I have very great respect. I love the organization. I've been very active in it for years and years. Um, most of those people are very leery, to say the least, of organic because what they're told all the time and what they, the people that come speak at their conferences are, are people who are promoting chemicals. Uh, the researchers at the university are promoting this stuff and that's what they're researching. So they know how to answer questions about how to apply it and get the most yields at least out of your, out of your farm. I think that they're not gonna be sustainable 
over the long haul in this way. So I, I did my book tour. I was able to be invited to summer meeting at Farm Bureau and I gave my, my book presentation there and, and a guy came out after the, my talk and up to me at the table and he said, um, well, he says, I don't um, give a darn about um, this organic stuff, but I see what you're saying, you know, in terms of decline of farm profits and, and farmers and going broke and declining of communities. He says, I see all that all around me and I want to buy your book. And so I said, wow, I did. I just felt to myself, this is why I wrote it. I didn't write it for the choir. I didn't write it for the people who already believed in this and were um, already converted to it. I wrote it, I wrote it for the people on the sidelines who are seeing all these problems and really don't know where to go or where to turn because it's, it's now becoming obvious that what we're doing isn't working, but there's no, they don't know any alternative to that. And so it's a very great frustration. And once they start thinking about alternatives then they can start looking in this direction of regenerative organic and, and not worry about all the baggage that, that has come with it. Another big problem with farmers that a bad mouth organic uh, systems and regenerative uh, organic systems for years. Now they have to eat humble pie and try it themselves. That's for some, that's a little more than they can swallow. <laughs> and um, it's easier for the next generation to come, you know, coming back to the farm to make the conversion because they haven't badmouthed it for 20 or 30 years. So there's no humble pie for them to eat. There's just, they're just trying something new. So I'm, I, one of my favorite audiences are the college campuses because these are the folks, they can finish the job. They've got the entire career ahead of them. They've got 35 years ahead of them of, of uh, work and um, uh, adding to the solutions. And in 35 years, they can make the, complete the, the change that we took 35 years to start. Those that have been plugging along for well, any part of those last 35 years, it's been quite slow, but things are, things are changing now much more rapidly and the demand is, growing much more rapidly and it, it is exciting and the restaurants are getting involved and and some schools and some hospitals and and so it's it's starting to pop up in all kinds of places that it, it didn't in the beginning and a benefit of organic and regenerative practices are creating a resiliency in your soil and your crops you know mm -hmm. to things such as severe weather patterns, which are yeah. being amplified by climate change, as yeah. farmers are seeing. Um, can you speak to some of the specifics that farmers are noticing due to climate changing and specifics that you notice on your land? Um, the way that uh, regenerative organic works is, is it mimics nature. And so there's, if you look out in nature, there's great diversity. And so we add that concept or principle of diversity to regenerative organic systems. And that's the only, and it, it makes them more stable. So diversity begets stability. And that's true in not only in agriculture on your farm, but in all, all aspects of life, in, in clubs, in towns, in schools, and anything you want, churches, anything you want to talk about, the more diverse it is, the more stable it is, because you've got <clears throat> all these different people with different talents, and they all work together. The plants um, are the same way with the soil. Um, each of them, contributes a little bit, some, something a little bit different. The advantage that that is in, in um, areas of climate change that we're experiencing now, some of the climate change, um, it's not just global warming, it's just, it's, I call it climate chaos instead of climate change because it's really chaotic. <clears throat> we're having extremes in our weather, uh, much more extremes than what we've had before. We can see some warming trends, that's true. We can see some 
uh, our rains are stopping sooner. It's getting warmer sooner in the, in the summer. <clears throat> and that's um, affecting some of our crops in general. But these extremes that we're um, seeing in hailstorms and windstorms and in, uh, violent storms um, come at different times. And if you have enough variation in your crops and you don't have all the same crop, they will, be a, they will affect those crops differently. So example, um, a very severe hailstorm we had quite early in the season in sort of later June. It was a time when the hay, um, our alfalfa hay had already been cut and, and put up. So that was out of danger completely. The winter wheat was ripening and was more subject to shelling out with hailstones. We had two types of barley. We had a Hollis barley, which was all bent over and easier to shell out than the feed barley, which was harder to shell out. So we had different types of different amounts of, of destruction, you could say it. So some, some things were a total loss and some things were saved completely. And so if we had just one crop and it was the most vulnerable stage, we could have lost 100%. So that's what I'm talking about of how diversity begets stability in days of, of climate chaos that's becoming more and more important. And there's opportunity for farmers to be actively involved in mitigating effects of climate chaos. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, with this, especially um, specific legislature this summer that was proposed with bipartisan support, the Growing Climate Solutions Act, mm -hmm. which aims to help farmers access carbon credit markets and get paid for the emissions that they reduce through carbon sequestration in their soils. Mm -hmm. And as a farmer and as a scientist, what are your initial thoughts on this act being proposed and how do you think it could change the operations of current conventional agriculture? Well, in the past, we've been incentivizing farmers to uh, produce as much as possible for as cheap as possible, and that's been the only goal. And there's been a lot of money poured into that. After I converted the whole farm to regenerative organic, I started realizing that our chemical bills about the time of our conversion averaged about twenty-four dollars to $26,000 a year. And our government subsidies at that time were about twenty-four to $26,000 a year. So it wasn't money that was coming to us at all. It was going to the chemical companies. It was just going through my checkbook. So I wasn't any better off for that. And yet there was a huge incentive to try to grow as much as possible because you're paid in those days proportionally on the, the yields that you got off of the allowed acres. So that, that was the big incentive. Now, if we have even a small incentive to go in a different direction of carbon sequestration, which means that more of the carbon, uh, you're putting more carbon into the ground, which is building the soil. And regenerative agriculture is all about that. To make the short answer, I'm excited to see this as an alternative to what we've been subsidized for or incentivized for over the last three or four decades. I think it's a great direction. I, I hope that people don't get to the mentality of the way they got with the last program. So just farming the, the government instead of farming the farm. So that means they try to just do the very least uh, for the greatest return for the government. <laughs> you know, I have a big um, problem with those who are writing about being regenerative and still using chemicals. And I also have about the same amount of problem with people who write about being organic, but do it in a very industrial way and focus on feeding the plants, but they're using organic inputs. It's great, that, it's great that people are making changes and, and climbing both of those ladders, but both of those ladders need to meet at the top and come together in what I call regenerative organic that um, focuses on soil building without 
chemical um, crutches and chemical inputs. And so there's no chemical residues in the environment or on your food. And that to me is the um, ultimate goal. I don't begrudge anybody who's climbing up either ladder from where they started, um, particularly the, the chemical guys. Um, they're, they're usually reducing their chemicals, that's great. And they're building their soils, and that's great. But I tell them, don't stop along the way, just keep on going. And I tell the organic guys the same way, don't, don't get stuck in the industrial model of, of um, inputs and focusing on your plants without much consideration of what's going on with your soil. And focus on your soil and see how much you can build that up with your own inputs, growing your own inputs or your, whatever you can do that can be uh, sustainable over the long haul. I mean, a lot of these inputs are, have finite amounts available. And at some point they start to run out. If we look at short time solutions like that, we're always going to be hopping from one to another. What we need is to focus on long-term solutions that combine the best of the concepts of regenerative with the best of the concepts of organic. So if the, if the law uh, focuses on chemical agricultural solutions by just creating a small incremental advantage for um, carbon sequestration, then I think that we're only tapping into a small percent of what we could benefit from continuing down that path. And so that would be the only thing I would be concerned about. I'm not concerned about opening the gate. I'm concerned about having the gate only swing one way. But I, I'm thrilled that we have a focus on the soil and, and the benefits. And we know that we could, if, if everybody became regenerative organic in the world, we would turn back the clock on carbon emissions or the carbon buildup in the atmosphere just about back to 100 years ago or so. I mean, it's, it's, it's a significant uh, turn back at the clock. So I'm, I think that that holds great solutions, but let's not stop partway down the path. Let's not continue to pollute our, our food and our, our environment and increase the um, amount of money extracted from rural America because of chemical inputs. Let's um, go all the way and build economies, build health of soils, build economic health of the farms and the physical health of the people. Right. And even in, in continuing to edit and shape that current legislation, you know, to make sure that all these different inputs and voices are there, right? Including the voices of the need, farmers. Right. And, and one thing that we need is more research to actually demonstrate, well, what kind of systems sequester what kind of carbon? So I'm, I'm looking and suggesting we have a multifaceted focus and look at all types of carbon sequestration, just not one um, model. And I'm speaking with you over video conference, and I see in the background a row of small flags from all over. Oh, yeah. I'm curious, and I know that your work takes you internationally to speak and work on this on these topics. Um, I'm curious, what are some differences you're seeing around the world that are kind of different from America's current state of agriculture and some exciting things, promising things that you're seeing around hmm. the world taking place? Well, thank you for that question. Um, Yes, those are flags of, of places, of countries I've visited. And when um, my friends from those countries come to visit me, I've got a, a flagpole, well, six flagpoles out in my yard. I fly their flag for them on their flagpole. So I really enjoy that. But to answer your question, the most stark thing that I came across was um, just last fall in a trip to Mongolia. Well, the reason I was invited to Mongolia is because it's very, very similar to Montana. It's about three times the size of Montana. Uh, or about a third the size of the United States. It's huge. 
uh, climate, their, their latitude is nearly identical to where I live in Montana, mm -hmm. and their altitude is very similar. They're landlocked like we are, and so they have a climate that's very, very similar to ours. And they wanted me to come and help them uh, with ideas for organic grain production. And when we got there, I was astounded to find out that the government had a policy of increasing and encouraging organic agriculture in their country to the point that was, they wanted to be the first country, the whole country was, that became organic, that all of their food produced in their whole country was organic. I was astounded by this. You know, here we think of Mongolia as backward. Well, they're more forced, foresight than we are. And, uh, and this came really to a head when we were sitting in a, a vice president's office of other leading universities. And my friend who's a, a food scientist was there to help with food safety issues. I mean, that's, their, that's what they're there for. And he said, what is your biggest concern in food safety? And he said, our biggest concern is cancer. Hmm. And you never hear cancer in related to food safety because you're always talking about salmonella and you know, bacterial contamination and all this stuff that we talk about in America. Immediate. <laughs> yeah, and he said cancer. And I said, what? I said, <laughs> I said do you mean... Are you talking about the, the residues of, of chemical agriculture on your food causing cancer? Is that your biggest concern in food safety? And he said, yes. Mm. And he could have blown me over the feather because if, if a person of his position in America made such a statement, they would be out of a job by morning. They would be fired. That is an unacceptable statement in America by a person in high position. This is really amazing. And I was astounded by that and, and had a great respect for their vision and their farsightedness. They looked at, at the disease that we have, chronic disease we have in America, and they said, we can't afford that. We don't want to bring that to our country, but we think we can avoid that challenge by the food that we eat and the way we produce it. And I said, wow, I'll help you any way I can. I'm, I am at your service. It was a, a really a stark difference. Uh, of cultures and, and focus and, and vision. That's amazing and just makes sense. You know, it's surprising that that's the outlier internationally of the approach and hopefully a philosophy that, that more countries can adopt and really see the benefit in. And Bob, one of your ventures is founding the brand Kamut International which promotes growth and products using Coruscant wheat, which is an ancient and high nutrition grain. I'm wondering if you can, in a nutshell, tell us what is Kamut and why are ancient grains so exciting? Well, that's a, yeah, I wrote a book about that. <laughs> I had seen this ancient grain when I was in, first in high school. And an old man, he's probably younger than I am now, but he looked pretty old to me as a high school kid. And he was passing out this grain out of a coffee can at a county fair um, in our county. And uh, he said, hey, Sonny, he said, would you like some of King Tut's wheat? And I said, oh, well, sure. And so he poured a handful uh, into my hand. And it was a giant wheat. It was three times the size of, of the wheat I was used to farming or seeing and had on our place. And the story was that a serviceman um, stationed in the Air Force in Portugal went to the bar one night and a fellow next to him showed him this giant wheat that he had taken out of a tomb in Egypt, he claimed. And as he gave him a few kernels, he sent home to his dad and they grew. Yeah, but anyway, that was the story. And it was a great novelty and a great story. And, and people um, grew it just for fun. And um, when I was just finishing my doctorate at UC Davis, I was eating a package of corn nuts just 
on an idle break one afternoon and I was reading the package and it said corn nuts made with a giant corn. And the corn nuts company at that point was just down the road from Davis at Berkeley mm -hmm. and I called or at Oakland maybe. And I called them up and I said, would you guys be interested in a giant wheat? And they said, oh, that sounds interesting. And I called my dad and I said, dad, see if we can find some of that old King Tut's wheat. And, and he checked with a lot of his friends and he finally found a, a pint jar about half full and sent me a few tablespoons and, and the folks at Corn Nuts said, wow, this is fantastic. I said, we'll take, we'll take 10,000 pounds. And I said, well, I don't really have 10,000 pounds. Um, uh, I didn't want to tell them I had less than one pound. I said, but if you just give me a, a little time, we'll grow up what we've got and you, know, you can have all you want. So I called my dad and said, dad, plant all that in the garden right now. So within about two or three uh, seasons, we had 50 pounds out of our, our, our um, half pound we started with. And um, I called up the corn nuts people and the guy I talked to was gone. He wasn't working there anymore. And no one knew about the project. No one was interested. And so we just put it on the shelf uh, in the shed. <clears throat> and about four or five years after that, we went to our first health food show in Anaheim in 1986. And uh, my, my folks went with me and my dad was showing jars of this, a jar of this giant wheat he brought, this King Tut's wheat to everybody that passed by our booth. Hundreds of people passed by. After three days, one person, came up and said, oh, wow, that's just what I'm looking for. I said, if you grow that, I'll, I'll buy everything you can produce. And so we went home, we planted our 50 pounds and on a half an acre. And in 30 years later, we were growing 100,000 acres on 250 organic farms all around Montana, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. It just uh, took off in ways we had never imagined. Um, Italy became our biggest customer. They take 75% of everything we grow and they love it because it reminds them of something they used to have. But the other thing that has, it has a wonderful flavor and wonderful texture. So it makes wonderful uh, pasta, uh, which we found as a near relative of wheat. Uh, we gave it uh, some pasta that we had made to a friend of ours who had severe wheat sensitivities. She couldn't uh, touch wheat with a 10 foot pole. She'd become, her muscles uh, gave out and she'd just collapse. Uh, besides all these other digestive problems that she'd have and other people have, but she had particularly bad. And uh, my dad gave her some. I would have never done that because I knew she couldn't touch wheat. But she did some kinesiology tests and she thought she could try it. The next day she called up my, my folks and she said to my dad, she said, what is this stuff? She said, when I eat it, it makes, not only can I eat it, but when I eat it, it makes me feel better. I said, wow, well, we'll send you some more. And so we sent her some more and and she said, you know, my sister has a lot of problems eating wheat and she has a lot of problems with other foods too she can't eat. And they said, well, well fine, we'll send her a case and we'll send her a big box of this pasta samples. And after her sister had eaten it for several weeks, she said not only could she eat it, but she was becoming less sensitive to other foods. And I said, wow, this is more than just a novelty. This is like a gift from from God or something. This is like, um, this, we need to take care of this. This is not just for making money. Uh, this is, maybe could help people. And so we decided then to have a, um, a mechanism to protect the grain. So it couldn't be adulterated or, or changed or, you know, increased in shield. It doesn't have a, it, it has a poor yield compared to modern wheat. And we didn't want people to monkey with that and just try to make more money. So we, uh, registered a trademark that we use to market the grain and the trademark is Kamut and Kamut is an ancient Egyptian word for wheat and the trademark registering a trademark doesn't mean you have ownership of your your grain that we're selling 
but it means that if you use that trademark, you're making certain guarantees to the uh, customers that buy it. And the guarantees we make is it's always uh, raised uh, certified organic. We require farmers to use regenerative um, practices. It has to be 99.9% .9 free of disease and um, other impurities. It has to be a certain level of protein. It's high protein, so it's easy to make that. And we also guarantee that we test every lot that it's grown and make sure that the, there is no traces of pesticides or herbicides or anything on it. And we started selling that and Arrowhead Mills at the time was the largest, most popular organic cereal company. And, and uh, they tried to make a cereal out of it and, and, and were very successful. And, um, that cereal was on the market for almost 30 years. And now Nature's Path is our biggest cereal producer Then they make several lines of heritage flakes and the main ingredient is Kamudi in it. Um, Bob's Red Mill is our biggest customer in America selling flour and whole grain and cracked grain. And Eden Foods is our biggest pasta manufacturer in America. And so those three kind of form the base of our, our production and sales in America. But in Italy, um, they, they just weren't limited by their imagination or what, they just put it into their everything. And they make um, beer with it, they make seitan, they make uh, a Kamut drink, they like Kamut milk. Uh, they make all kinds of pasta, breads, cookies, crackers, um, desserts, and uh, people who have trouble eating wheat, that's all they eat. Mm -hmm. And um, we've done a lot of research to understand the difference between modern wheat and ancient wheats, and we found huge differences. This ancient grain is anti-inflammatory. The difference between, and, and modern wheat is in, causes inflammation. So the difference is like 30 or 40%. Um, it has a higher antioxidant capacity. It, it increases um, minerals like zinc and magnesium in your blood. Um, it's, it reduces cholesterol, it reduces blood sugar. It's really good for diabetics because it reduces um, the blood sugar and then the need for the insulin. The insulin levels are lower, the insulin resistance is lower. So there's all these health benefits of this ancient grain. We don't know the mechanism of action. There's probably several, um, but we do know that the breeding that we've done to modern wheat to focus only on yield and on low volume for the baker has produced a product now that 20% of the people in this country can no longer digest or eat without problems. Hmm. And I think that's been a great disservice uh, in order to have cheap, plentiful wheat. And I think it's just the tip of the iceberg in any crop that's probably had a lot of breeding for a specific purpose of just either manufacturing um, efficiency or yields has probably lost some nutritional components along the way. We should be growing and focusing on nutrition per acre rather than just tons per acre and, and feeding our people better. And we do that with better soils, but we also do it with better seeds. And the seeds is the genetics that, uh, that we started with. So that's what we've learned in, in, in a nutshell. And that's why I, I'm really uh, passionate about reconnecting the idea of food and health. And the closer we get back to that, the more success we will see. Absolutely. I'd say you should write a book, but you've written many. So yeah. <laughs> Before we fully say adieu, this whole conversation has been a giant call to action for the public and farmers and USDA. Um, are there any final calls to action you'd like to give a shout out to a specific body of people um, or humanity in general? I would say in the summarizing of everything we talked about, that if we would go back to the, something as basic as uh, Rodale talks about this a lot, that healthy soils make healthy food, make healthy people. And the only thing I would add to that is starting with super seeds. 
and super seeds I just defined as the seeds that um, were created for us and, and come already in a package that provides us with the health and nutrition we need. If we think we can make something better from, with that and we only focus on one area like yield, then we're, we don't have our super seeds anymore. We have uh, our artificial seeds which reduce nutrition in many ways because we're not looking at nutrition. And so if we add super seeds to healthy soil to make super healthy food, then we would have super healthy folks. And I think that could be a, a huge benefit in so many ways to all of us. Thank you so much to Bob Quinn for sharing all of that information with us. You can check out his book, Grain by Grain, A Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Food, and find out more about him and his work at bobquinnorganicfarmer.com. You can also follow him on Instagram at bobquinnorganicfarmer. Thank you all so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe for more stories and share these episodes with others to hear inspiring action to help you find your role in a thriving planet. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and Twitter at Stories number four action. Learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all.